Dear Father in heaven, help us to listen well to your word today. Open our ears to hear the message that the gospel proclaims. Help Pastor Jim to hear your voice and preach your message well. And help us to apply this message to our daily lives. Be with us today. We ask you to open our hearts to you as we worship and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to counsel. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Some of you may be familiar with the work of a psychologist named John Gottman. Uh, He, together with his wife Julie, has spent the last four decades studying what makes human relationships work. Uh, He has a lab at the University of Washington uh, that they call the Love Lab. It's designed like a a beautiful bed and breakfast uh, where couples come and uh, they just do normal things while being observed by scientists. Uh, And they mostly uh, just ask the couples to talk together. And uh, the Gottmans listen carefully to the words they use. And then they follow up six years later to see if they are still together. And from the data they've gathered, they've been able to arrive at some remarkable results. They identify two kinds of couples, the masters and the disasters. And what makes the difference between being a master and a disaster is the way that the couple speak with each other, even in the smallest things. In an interview in the Atlantic Magazine, Gottman explained, there's a habit of mind that the masters have, which is this. They are scanning the social environment for things they can appreciate and say thank you for. They are building this culture of respect and appreciation very purposefully. Disasters are scanning the social environment for partners' mistakes. For example, if a husband and wife are together, and the wife points out a a beautiful bird out the window, the husband either can respond positively and and make connection, or he can ignore the comment or or be dismissive of it. And our relationships are made of lots of little interactions like this, which the Gottmans call bids. We're always making these bids one to another. And when our bids are ignored or treated with contempt, the relationship suffers. But when they are received and and responded to with appreciation, the relationship flourishes. Just by listening to couples interact for a few minutes, uh, Gottman can predict 
with 94% certainty what will happen to the couple, whether they will break up or stay together six years later. This research came to mind as I, I studied today's text because we might be surprised by how seriously Jesus considers the words that we speak. But in fact, it fits very well with what psychologists like the Gottmans are telling us. We're in the midst of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, this, this famous collection of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we've seen, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kind of countercultural life that should mark followers of Jesus. Last week, uh, we even heard Jesus say that the righteousness of his disciples would surpass even that of the most religious people of his time in the first century, the Jewish Pharisees. And now, in the rest of this chapter, Jesus gives six illustrations of what he means by this, what this surpassing or or exceeding righteousness looks like. Six times he says, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes from the Old Testament law, and he says, but I say to you, and gives his interpretation. And today, we look at the first one, and there are three things that we learn uh, from this example that Jesus gives based on the sixth commandment. We can consider it under three headings. The heart of true righteousness in verses 21 and 22. The result of true righteousness in verses 23 to 26. And finally, we'll consider the source of true righteousness. So that the heart, the result, the source of true righteousness. Let's, let's look at each one of these. First, what is the heart of true righteousness? The kind of righteousness that Jesus is describing and wants his disciples to live. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus says something surprising, but very helpful for understanding what he means. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, quoting the the sixth commandment, and, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. That's also a quote from the Old Testament law. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, what's surprising here is that Jesus says that the smallest things receive the greatest judgment. Let's wrestle with this for a minute. It's a fair question to ask. You know, doesn't God have more important things to worry about than a temper tantrum or an insult? Not according to what Jesus says here. How do we understand this? Well, remember something we heard Jesus say last week in in verse 17. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. What Jesus is is doing here and in what follows in the rest of the chapter is showing us what this fulfillment looks like, what it really means to keep the Ten Commandments. The temptation of religious people in, in Jesus' day and in our own is only to look on the outside at external behavior. And over and over again, we're going to find Jesus going to the inside, to the heart, 
as the source of all that is right and wrong in our words and actions. Murder and a rude insult look very different. But in reality, they're like two streams of water, both fed by the same underground spring. Let me offer you, offer you an illustration of what I mean. Last week, I was talking uh, with Professor Hardin after the service, and he was telling me about how he explains to students the importance of his lab's research and this tiny little worm uh, that they study, uh, C. elegans. Uh, in his introduction to developmental biology class, uh, I think it's Zoology 470, if, if you're interested in signing up, uh, in, at the beginning of this class, he puts up two pictures, one of his own uh, car and the other of his son's car, both taken at his son's wedding reception a few years ago. And the first picture is of his son's car. It's a Maserati. If you're, if you're into cars, you should talk to the Hardens. And the second picture is of Jeff's car, a 98 Toyota Corolla, hand-me-down from his father-in-law. And his point to the students is, you can learn a lot about a Maserati from studying a Toyota. They look very different on the outside. The Maserati has a lot more bells and whistles. But if you open up both of them and you look inside at their engines, you'll find that they both operate on the same basic principles. In the same way, uh, Jeff looks at those little worm embryos as a model for understanding the basic principles of genetics. Now, why am I telling you this? It's for this reason. On the outside, murder and an insult look very different. But what Jesus is saying is that if you open both of them up, metaphorically speaking, and you look inside, what you'll find is the same thing. A heart that does not love as it should. If what Jesus is saying here is true, this means that, that even our smallest annoyances and moments of impatience can be a model for understanding our own hearts. Those things could be like those little worms in the lab that they use to understand genetics. Let me suggest a, a homework assignment for you this week. Here's what I want you to do. Just pay attention to yourself. That, that alone is pretty hard. Uh, just pay attention to yourself and look for a moment when your temper flares or you're disdainful of someone or you say a harsh word, especially with regard to people who are close to you, maybe the people that you live with. You know, Jesus talks here about being angry with a brother or sister. It's often those who are closest to us with whom we struggle the most. Now, when this happens, I want you just to try and notice it. Notice what you think and, and what you say in that moment. And then, when you have a chance, 
do some reflection on it. When you got angry, or, or, or whatever it is that happened, what was going on inside of you? What were you feeling? What was it about the person or the situation that set you off? In other words, I'm asking you to, to look inside your heart and ask, well, what, what is going on in there in that moment? And if, if you feel really brave, invite someone else into the conversation. You know, maybe someone in your household group or, or a friend or, or a family member. And ask them to, to help you think this through. What do you think is going on with me when this happens? You see, I think these are the kinds of conversations that we'll have regularly if we're disciples of Jesus. Because we'll be people who care about what's going on inside of us as much as what's happening on the outside. So that's our first point, that the heart of righteousness. But, but how do you know if you've found your way to the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about? You know it from the results. This is our, our second point, the result of true righteousness. Verse 23 begins with the word so in our translation. It's, it's the word un in Greek, which we could also translate therefore. It follows on what Jesus has just said. If you're humble enough to see your harsh words as just as wrong as an act of murder, then he's saying you'll become the kind of person that he goes on to describe in the rest of this passage. This is the kind of person who seeks reconciliation, not just when they're a victim, but when you're the one who has hurt someone else. It takes a profound humility to do this, but in these verses, Jesus says that it's both important and urgent that we do so. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus tells us how important it is. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, he says, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. This is an illustration from the life of the temple, where the Jews of Jesus' day would go and make offerings as an act of worship and to seek forgiveness from God. Jesus says that seeking reconciliation with another person is as important as one's relationship with God himself. This reminds me of a story I once heard about a Ugandan pastor who was going to preach after a fight with his wife. Uh, the Holy Spirit said to him, go back and pray with your wife. And he argued, but I'm due to preach in 20 minutes. I'll do it afterwards. Okay, said the Holy Spirit. You go and preach. I'll stay with your wife. <laughs> Seeking forgiveness from those we have wronged is this important, Jesus is saying. In, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says that it's... Uh, not just important that we seek reconciliation, it's urgent. This illustration comes from the law court. Come to terms quickly, uh, literally in Greek, make friends quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. 
or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, make things right before the judgment comes. Do it now, as quickly as possible. Some of you may be surprised that Jesus uses the the language of judgment and and even hell in in this passage. In fact, if you study the Gospels, Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. His point is not that God is so nitpicky that he hands out infinite punishments for minor missteps. Instead, he's warning that those minor missteps, when repeated over and over again, make us increasingly self-centered and and blind to ourselves. And Jesus is saying that if if we are living only for ourselves and treating others badly as as a result, then we are in real danger. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just to grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. But if you've been humbled by the teaching of Jesus, if you see uh, what is going on inside of your heart, a different dynamic uh, begins to be at work. When you're able to admit what is really in your heart and, and the judgment that it deserves, you begin to realize the, the radical nature of God's grace. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The goal of Jesus is not to make us wallow in our sin. It's to transform us into the kind of people who have the humility and the character to leave our gift at the altar and go to that brother or sister who has something against us or to forgive the one who has wronged us. This brings us to our last point. We've talked about the heart of true righteousness and the result of true righteousness. But what is the source of a goodness like this? How do you get it? Two things are important. You must see yourself for what you are. And you must see God for who he is. On seeing ourselves, we learn something important about this from the very first act of violence in the Bible, the the story of Cain's murder of his brother Abel. You remember what happens from the story in Genesis 4. Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And when the time came for them both to bring an offering to God, uh, Abel did a better job than Cain. Abel brought the very best of his flock while Cain brought something ordinary. And as a result, Cain was very angry. and, And the Lord warns him about his anger. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, 
Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. But Cain doesn't listen. He goes out and he murders Abel in the field. What do we learn from Cain? We learn that under every outward sin, like an act of violence or a harsh word, there is a deeper sin. Under Cain's violence was anger and pride that he'd been shown up by his brother. The Lord warns him that that bitter seed will grow unless he deals with it, but he refuses. This is true in in every area that Jesus will address in the Sermon on the Mount. Under adultery is lust. Under promise-breaking is selfishness. Whatever your struggle, freedom comes as you identify the, the deeper cause of your sin. There's a difference between saying, sometimes I get angry, and confessing honestly, you know what? I am an angry person. If we only say, sometimes I get angry, we'll confess what is on the outside, the yelling, the cursing, the impatience. But we ignore what is on the inside, the the deeper anger, the the self-righteousness, the pride, the lack of love for the people around us and for God. I've seen this in my own life, though it's taken me many years uh, to recognize it. For a long time, I denied that I ever got angry. I was nearly always calm and collected and very reasonable in conflict. But I would say at times that I was frustrated. I was frustrated with people, frustrated with circumstances, frustrated with myself. I didn't fly off the handle very often, but I would latch on to something and and just stew over it. With other people, I would poke and prod and interrogate until I was satisfied that a matter had been dealt with. If things didn't go my way, I would make you know it, subtly. Finally, one day, after hearing myself say it for the millionth time, I realized that frustration was just a code word for anger. That I was angry. That I I was becoming an angry person. And when I could finally confess that, that I was angry and and I could seek forgiveness for all the ways in which it led me to mistreat others, especially those close to me, it was liberating. Maybe some of you are realizing that you have some code words of your own. Maybe you're hearing Jesus' invitation, maybe for the first time, to to go under the surface to see what is really driving you and to believe that God can and will meet you there in that place. If this is you today, I have good news. When we allow Jesus to expose our hearts, and see what is really there, he reveals his power to change us from the inside out. God reveals himself as a God of grace.
In closing, let, let me ask you a question. Why do we call this the Sermon on the Mount? Is the fact that Jesus went up on a mountain to preach this sermon just a random detail? No. It, it was deeply meaningful to his Jewish hearers, to the disciples. Just as Moses went up on a mountain to receive God's law, Jesus goes up on a mountain to bring his teaching. The whole Gospel of Matthew is structured to make this point. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He enters into the very presence of God and then brings down the law for the people to follow. When Jesus goes up on the mountain to teach, what does he do? Does he tell his disciples to wait at the bottom while he receives a new law from God and brings it down? No. He brings his disciples with him up onto the mountain. They begin in the presence of God. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is not try to live like this and then you will be close to God. The message is you can live like this if you are close to God. That's the good news. If you want to be different, Jesus doesn't just say try harder. If you're hungering and you're thirsting for this surpassing righteousness, there's just one way to get it. You have to get close to Jesus. But as you draw close to him, you realize that he is already drawn close to you. That the very presence of God is with him. That's what his life and his death and his resurrection are all about. That's God getting as close to human beings as he possibly can. Living our life, dying our death, so that we might be made new in union with him. We are the ones who should have gone to him to seek reconciliation. But instead, he made the first move to free us from our self-centeredness and our pride and to make all things new. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, uh, we pray today that you would open our eyes to see ourselves as we are in all our brokenness and sin. Would you show us our hearts even in this coming week as we reflect on our, our behavior and our relationships? Uh, would you give us the honesty and the courage uh, to confess to you what is inside of us so that our eyes might be opened even more to your grace and your love, that we would see that, uh, that your grace and your love goes uh, far deeper than we can ever imagine uh, in meeting us in our need. Uh, we pray that you would change us by your grace and that you would empower us to love as you love and to give as you give. Uh, through and with Jesus. And we thank you uh, for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.